Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. My guest today is Neil Singh. Neil is the Director of Business Development for Technology at Team NEO, which stands for Northeast Ohio. In this episode of the podcast, Neil and I discuss seed to Series A financing, the medtech market in Cleveland, advice for startup companies, the importance of cap tables when raising money, and more. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my discussion with Neil Singh. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. Okay, Neil, thanks for joining me on the podcast this morning. Good to be here, Dwayne. Yeah, so I mentioned in your bio that um, you work for uh, Team Neo, um, and and for those who who don't know uh, globally, that's Tor- Team N- Northeast Ohio, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, wonderful. So so um, let's start with your background in the space and work all the way up to your current position with Team Neo. Okay, um, so basically, I spent. Most majority of my career in New Zealand, that's where I'm from originally. I migrated out here to Ohio in 2016, uh, thanks to my wife, who was born and raised in Cleveland. And that's how I ended up in Ohio, just so you yeah. know. I got to pause there because I was going to say, there's no way you're from New Zealand and somehow <laughs> chose Cleveland out of nowhere. <laughs> well, Not that there's uh, anything wrong with Cleveland. I love uh, Cleveland too. But <laughs> I, I, think, I think you guys really underestimate what you got here. Honestly, it's, it's really great. I mean, I've had a great time being Good. here. I, I, I love the people. I love the community. It's, it's a really great place to live. Cost of living is amazing. I mean, yeah. you can't beat that about Northeast Ohio. Uh, so yeah, again, 16 year career in, in New Zealand in software engineering, um, various startups, technology training, network infrastructure and enterprise. I, I've basically done a little bit of everything in that IT space over my career. And it's, it's hard to go through bullet point by bullet point, because if I did that, I would end up with a 20-page resume that no one would read. Uh, but with that said, the good, good thing about sort of the experiences I've had in my career so far has been the massive learning curve, you know, like a huge learning curve from just trying, doing, and failing, and then sort of re, reinventing, reiterating and then learning and going forward. So how I ended up in Team Neo, obviously when I came here, I was still going through some of my paperwork to you know, become a legal citizen. And I was doing odd jobs. You know, I did sales jobs for companies like Verizon. I, I did other odd jobs and tech marketing jobs and things like that. And then I got involved with a Detroit-based company that was doing workshops and emerging technology. And so we went to, you know, we went to PA, we went to Michigan, we, you know, we did one in Ohio and Cleveland, we did a few others around the country as well. And we were teaching people about AR and VR and all these different emerging technologies and how they would make an impact in education, business, healthcare, etc. And so when I was organizing the event in Cleveland, I approached Jumpstart flash starts and a number of other stakeholders in the community saying look i would love your support to try and pull this together we have the content we have the presenters we have great keynote we just need a location and we need some community advertising and so i pulled some people together from jumpstart from case and other other places in the community and they said well have you spoken with team neo 
And I, I said, I've never heard of Team Neo. What do they do? And, they, and the, the folks I was speaking to said, well, Team Neo is a local economic development organization, but basically they host a lot of events in smart manufacturing and technology. This might be in their wheelhouse of um, interest. So I, I got a referral and approached Team Neo and had a conversation with their VP of Innovation, Senior Vice President of the Innovation Team, Jay Fran, who was my current boss. And, you know, I was speaking with them about the emerging technology workshops that I was doing and where, where we had gone, what we had done and, and how it was having an impact. And I think, I think the team that I spoke to at Team Neo got very interested and engaged by the idea of here's this guy kind of new to Ohio doing something interesting and really making some kind of impact with you know his his workshops and his blogging and, and the contributions that he's making so that was really fun sort of having that conversation but the best part about it was they called me back so I got an email, you know, after that first initial meeting, and they said, you know what, we, we'd like to talk some more with you. There could be some opportunities. Uh, would you would you like to come in again? So I did. You know, I, I went in again about a week or two later, and we had another conversation that wasn't related to the workshop. They did support it, by the way. They did support Jumpstart and others in, in the workshop that I did. And... And they said, let's have a conversation about where to from next. You know, where, where do, what, what does Neil see in his future sort of deal? And, and I said, well, I'm, I'm really looking at great opportunities right now. You know, what, what's out there and, and really trying to learn about Northeast Ohio and, and settling here and things like that. And they said, well, we have a position in technology. Would you be interested? And I was very, very upfront with them about the fact that I had no economic development experience. So my experience was tech. And they said, well, that's the kind of person we want. We want someone from industry who understands tech and can speak to these technology companies and speak to them in their own language, obviously, and then bring in all of these economic development resources that we have working with Jobs Ohio to support these companies. So there was a bit of a fit, you know, it was a, it was a pretty good cultural fit, pretty good natural fit for me. And I accepted the position about two years ago now at Team Neo and haven't looked back. It's been a really wonderful journey working in economic development. And, you know, I've learned so much about how rich the Northeast Ohio tech ecosystem is. Mm -hmm. And that's a wonderful story. And I must admit, we have to get better at telling that story nationally and internationally. Mm -hmm. I'm very passionate about that. So anyway, yeah. I'll, I'll be quiet now. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great background. Uh, so, so we got first introduced to each other through uh, Mike Kermeens. Um, and we, we, we had a, a cup of coffee together and talked about um, you know, med tech falls under, under your umbrella, correct? Under team Neo. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, team Neo deals with 10 different sectors and, mm -hmm. and they're the same sectors as what jobs Ohio has as well. Okay. We do, we do have a, a, a specialized director of healthcare um, in jobs Ohio and team Neo is, is in the process of recruiting its own as well for specifically for healthcare. But when it comes to healthcare technology, I do um, work very closely with our um, partners at Jobs Ohio, uh, you know, and the, the medical director, the healthcare director at Jobs Ohio uh, to investigate opportunities and projects. Outside of healthcare and healthcare technologies, the whole spectrum of technology is covered from, you know, sort of bio, uh, SaaS, you know, general IT, manufacturing, smart manufacturing, IoT, everything that is encompassed in, in that sort of technology space. I, I okay. cover all these areas. Very cool. Okay, awesome. So let's 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 dive into the medical device space then, and the med tech field. Um, mm -hmm. And 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 the real, you know, the reason I wanted to, the main topic we wanted to cover today, um, when we were talking. Uh, for the first time, we were discussing, you know, from a financial standpoint, um, where do we see 
companies fail? What's the hardest step for in, in terms of finance, raising money? Um, where do a lot of these startups in the medical device um, area fail from a global standpoint, not just Northeast Ohio, but, but Northeast Ohio as well, right? And that's really getting from your seed run or seed, seed raise to series A. You know, a lot of time in that seed round, there's friends and family, um, which it's not hard. I mean, you got to have people who have money, but it's not hard to raise money from them. Um, and, and it's a different kind of pitch when you're pitching to family and friends to, to series A. Now you're talking about some bigger investors, larger dollar amounts. Um, and, and, and that's hard. And, it, and that's the, <clears throat> as you said, that's the biggest, the biggest raise they're going to do um, or the, the hardest step. So, so let's talk about that. I mean, Dive into it. You're the expert here, and and I just merely know the terms. <laughs> well, well, I I, don't, I never like to use the word expert because we're always constantly learning. So right. I, I okay. would like I'd like to say I'm the learner as much as you are, and as much <laughs> as people in the audience who are listening yeah. to this. And but the way I would sort of you know set this discussion up is to say that medical devices, medical technology, and medical software in general is very similar to any other type of startup in that innovation technology space. You know, you're creating some kind of MVP or device to test in a market. You're identifying what that market is, where you solve a problem in that market, and ultimately, you know, is there scale? You know, can, can you grow, grow this as a business um, at, a, at a much higher level? And, and so the questions that, that you tend to ask, and, and I'll come back to medical devices in particular, I think some of the challenges when you look at the medical device industry are regulation. Mm-hmm. You know, so compliance regulation and, and, and sort of HIPAA and everything else in between that sort of guides and governs the healthcare industry, uh, whether it's biotechnology, whether you're creating a new drug of some sort in a pharmaceutical style company, or whether you're creating a, a new type of blood pressure or heart monitor or something like that, an actual device, there are a numerous number of regulations that you have to actually deal with and compliance issues. And the biggest cost center to healthcare and med tech companies tends to be how do we overcome compliance because we're spending potentially the next four or five years in testing and trial before we can go to market. And during that testing and trial, there's a lot of legal costs involved in becoming compliant before before you go to market. And I'm not an expert by any means on what the federal, you know, all of the federal conditions are. I know there's thousands of them. Uh, But this is the biggest cost center. You know, this is one of the biggest challenges to go from point A to point B. So for medical startups in particular, the best thing to do is look into your partnerships. You know, when you're creating an innovation and you're saying, well, we identified a problem and we, we think our device solves that problem, look at who the partnering organizations and the healthcare institutions in your community might be that could help you not only pilot and test what you're doing and prove that MVP, but also maybe come in in terms of partnering opportunities when it comes to trying to raise capital, whether that's from a letter of interest saying, you know, like we want to do business with this company. We think their product has a a very good market fit for one of our, you know, healthcare opportunities and we want to bring them into that ecosystem, that's one way of approaching or tackling it. Because when you've got a good partner, then some of the the compliance challenges get easier. So I'll try and kind of present a bit of an example. It's not a real one, but let's just for the audience's benefit. If, if I'm a medical startup, and let's say I've developed some kind of new um, portable blood pressure monitor or something like that right and and i think it could be used in in the hospital system very actively my first point of call to demonstrate the benefits of that technology or how it would work and what it enables would be to create 
that basic MVP, maybe a wireframe or a presentation of some sort, and then go directly to the medical providers. So in our case, in Northeast Ohio, that might be Cleveland Clinic, that might be UH, you know, university hospitals. They're some of the bigger players in the region. And I might talk to them directly and in, in, in their innovation team and say, look, you know, I've, I think I've come across something here. I think I'm solving a problem. Uh, how do I work with you to one, better understand you know, how to develop this MVP for the market, for the industry that you're in, and two, how to actually go from where I am now with an innovation or an idea into a commercialization process. They're going to be your best champions if you create something that they genuinely see value in. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a case of whether you're disruptive or not, because healthcare is a little bit different to other types of technology because they see the value add of different types of tech. And one thing interesting about Northeast Ohio is that we have strength in developing medical devices from MRI systems and you know other types of monitors that are used in the hospital system. Like we have a lot of strength in companies that are doing this type of work. Uh, and so for companies in our local area, especially in Northeast Ohio, there's a lot of doors that you can knock on, you know, to, to basically get some initial traction. And I'll pause for a second, because I know I've been talking nonstop. Well, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. And, but, you know, and, and so I've kind of gone in a bit of a circle here in terms of identifying that market first as a startup prior to jumping into this financing funding question. Mm -hmm. Now, when we talk about raising capital seed, seed round through Series A, we're really looking at some variables that don't just apply to medtech, they apply to all startups. And these variables are understanding, for example, your cost of acquisition for customers, your customer lifetime value, um, your burn rate as a company, you know, how much money are you actually chewing through in developing your product service innovation and getting that to market? Um, what's your runway? You know, so if an investor comes and gives you the amount of money you're seeking, how long are you able to operate on that capital until you're profitable? There are a whole bunch of these questions that are more or less standard for any type of startup. You have to have answers that make sense for these questions. But the reason I talked more about the medical startups having compliance challenges is because that's probably the biggest cost center for their business. So when you're developing your pitch deck to raise C through Series A money, you have to build in that cost center into that business plan and say, look, um, we can speak to that. We can speak to this large level of investment that the investors will be thinking about because we understand the market. We understand what we are working with and what we're trying to get into. Uh, but nothing, nothing complements that better than runs on the board. And this is why I, I, I really emphasize the value of working with healthcare providers that may be early adopters of your technology because that's gonna strengthen your case when you're talking with healthcare investors who are often part of the same community, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've got a med medical device, if you've got a healthcare startup, talking with that community of people within that sector, that's gonna lead to the right investors becoming involved. And they're gonna understand your story better than let's say a more general tech investor that might be doing social media or marketing startups or something else, right? So one, address, address that market. Two, understand your compliance costs. Three, target the community or the sector that you're working in specifically and try and work with them rather than thinking that you and your co-founders are on your own trying to save the world because that is a mistake that happens time and time again with a lot of founders. You know, they go out there, they have a great idea, they create something, they think, you know, we're going to be the next Amazon. And it doesn't happen. And the reason it doesn't happen is not because you didn't have a great idea or you didn't solve a problem, 
but instead you didn't build that network to support you to get from where you are now to where you need to be tomorrow. Again, I'll pause because <laughs> I've been talking, but capital raising, uh, we'll dive into that a little more, but yeah, yeah that's... Yeah. Um, you touched on a, you know, a lot of really good stuff there. I think I'll just start, I'll just start with the, the, the first one, which is, is, is networking. Um, networking is absolutely crucial for your career and especially when you're a startup, right? Uh, I mean, I've noticed it in, in, in both areas and they actually kind of blend together, right? So, um, I, I first realized the importance of networking when it came to going, you know, trying to make my next move in my career and hopping here and hopping there. Um, and, and actually going from NAMSA to Covance for me um, was because of my network, right? I, you know, I had, I knew people there who were already there and it was easy for me to make that move. But then when I launched Project MedTech as well, um, getting guests on the podcast, it was all about my network. Right. And, and who you knew and, and how do I tap into that? And um, I think that is, you can see how crucial it is for startup companies when it comes to raising money, but just making connections in general and, and knowing who to go to for things that the bigger network you can tap into, and it doesn't necessarily have to be your network. Maybe it's, it's maybe, you know, three people, but those three people are big network folks and you could tap into their networks. It's, it's huge for the success of your startup company, not just with financing, but with, with the entire process of bringing a medical device to, to market. And, and I will add to that, actually, because yeah. the quality of that network that you build within the sector that you're targeting, mm -hmm. that's a huge thing that a lot of yes. companies do not understand. It's like, look, okay, if I make a connection with this a CEO or a board level person in a large healthcare provider, and I just ask for their mentorship or their guidance, because, you know, if there's someone who's been in the industry 25 plus years, and they know the ins and outs of what you're doing, because they're in practice, right? It could be, it could even, it doesn't necessarily need to be a C-level or an executive. It could be a surgeon, for example. Mm -hmm. You might have developed a new surgical instrument that you think is going to make it easier for people to do heart surgery, right? So you're, you're one of your mentors in that network that you build could be a heart surgeon or a half a dozen other heart surgeons in the community that are very well-versed you know, in terms of that work and understand it inside out. And they have become your biggest assets and your champions for not only critiquing whether what you've done works or not, but also providing guidance and advice towards, you know, well, if you tweak this here, then it would work perfectly for us. You know, then it would solve a problem for us. And, and so I, I think when we look at the network or the quality of the network, we're looking at two or three really strong points. One is the, the skills and expertise and the value that the person brings to the table as part of your business or your idea. And then the second part also is the, the connections that they have that could open doors for you. And then the validity of sort of you know how they see your business so so when i say the validity of it when you're building an mvp when you're building a product or a service for for healthcare or any market for that matter validation is really important right so if you can sell or if you i, I don't like using the word sell but it is selling but if you can convince somebody who's been in that industry and seen it all that what you've done genuinely does have an impact, that genuinely does solve a problem. And then they can take that product or service away, try it out, you know, for a short amount of time and, and see for themselves that it works the way you said it will. Then all of a sudden you've got that validity. You know, you've got now a network, not just someone in your network, but someone who can champion your business on your behalf. And that becomes your strength. That becomes your door that opens up towards 
the investment community because when you go to an investor, that's what they're going to ask for. They're going to say, well, have you got bookings? Have you got clients who's testing your product or your MVP? You know, they're going to ask all the client-related questions to see how much of this work you've done by yourself. And then if you can go in there and say, well, you know, I, I created a product for heart surgery. I've got six, you know, heart surgeons across the community that have used the product over the last three months. I have, you know, this executive from this hospital system that's um, been mentoring and supporting us. You know, if you can go out there and really build a story or a narrative around the quality and the level of support that you've been getting by working within the industry you're targeting, that builds your business case for an investor. And a lot of people skip over that. You know, a lot of people, they'll spend 10 slides on, look how great my product is. And then they'll go to something like, well, you know, this is our TAM, this is our total addressable market and it's worth $50 billion. They'll say something ridiculous like that. Now, instantly, and I hate to say it because entrepreneurs might shoot me for this, but instantly, the minute you go in and you tell an investor that your TAM is so big, they lose interest. Now, why do they lose interest? That's the question. Why do they lose interest? Well, they lose interest because they think this, this person or the, these founders who have walked into our office today have no chance in hell. Of, of capturing $50 billion of their addressable market. And so put yourself in their position. What that investor is thinking of when you're talking with them is, look, what can you do? I don't care what, how big your market is or how big you think it is. What have you done to prove yourself in that market as a business? What traction have you got? So even if you've captured one client in the space of six months or something. That's your story. You know, we went and we captured one client and we were determined to get our MVP in that door. That's your story. And if you can show them that you can serve that narrative of your business getting traction, they're all of a sudden gonna start to be motivated and say, you know what, they've done a lot of hard work to get that traction. And so we can help them scale that you know, we can help them build up from that point because they have the tenacity to go ahead and, and do the work that's required to be done. So even when you're at seed stage, early stage funding, that's still, that's going to come up in every investor commentary that you ever get, whether you're discussing an investment, doing a pitch deck, presenting a business plan, it doesn't matter, that's going to come up. So validation and obviously building that strength of that value proposition based on what you can achieve yourself. Mm -hmm. Not not my market is X, Y, Z big. <laughs> right. Okay. Very good. I, I appreciate that. Um, so I want to talk about how we bridge the gap from seed to series A. Um, Cause that's, that's something we talked about. And, and let's just talk about in general. I do want to, the, I want to end with um, the Cleveland market for MedTech, um, but I, 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 I want to cover the seed to series A and how, how, how you bridge that gap as an entrepreneur. Yeah. And, and I, I think there are some challenges depending on where you are. Um, so okay. when we, when we think about the market, let's look at the U S in general, there are some hotspots for certain things, centers of excellence. Everybody knows Silicon Valley yeah. and, and Silicon Valley is very strong for tech investment. They're also very strong for, for taking higher risks and more early stage investment. Mm -hmm. Coming back to kind of what I was saying before, the, the, the boxes you have to tick to raise that capital, whether you're here or there are the same. The, the difference between that is the cost of the capital. So maybe you're raising more money in a market like Silicon Valley for a tech company by having answers, you know, addressable, you know, obviously validation in, inside of your marketplace. And, and maybe you can raise more capital in that market because there's more high-risk investors that are willing to take a bet on you. But with that said, even here in Northeast Ohio, for example, or anywhere in the Midwest, you're still going to go through the same questions. You're still going to go through the same process. Now, the challenge is that, and, and I'll get to this because this is really important as part of the question. Friends and family money can only go so far. 
So we're talking, when we talk about friends and family money in an early stage startup, you're talking about potentially refinancing or mortgaging, getting a second mortgage on your house to fund your business, um, borrowing money from maybe parents, uncles, aunts, whatever, you know, whoever in your family is willing to help. And the thing is, you start to sort of think about, well, how much can I actually get from that cluster of people? And uh, uh, unless, unless your family's very rich, which most of us aren't, frankly, um, you, you know, you might look at 50 to 100K. You know, that's a modest amount of money that you could actually raise probably from friends and family to, to get your startup off the ground. But that's not enough. I mean, that, that is just not enough. You, you could develop your prototype. You could probably develop, depending on business, but certainly for medical technology or medical innovation, it's, it's not enough, right? Because of all the other things that we've talked about. But the next step on from that is, okay, where do I find my angels, right? And we talked about the network before. A lot of your angels might come from that network relationship building. But the money that you're looking for at that point in time is beyond sort of that 100K level, certainly. I would say it's anywhere between 250,000 to 2 million. Now, that's a very, very fair range when you're dealing with seed or angel round capital. And again, coming back to sort of what I mentioned before, market validation and all of this, all of these homework tasks that you have to do to build your business, those are the things that will lead to that capital conversation with any angel investor. But the thing about angel investors is they might only want to come in in a smaller level. So you might get an angel who says, well, I know you're trying to raise 250, but we don't want to make too big of a bet. We'll come in at 25K. So all of a sudden you've got a problem of where do I find the rest of it? 25K is only 10% of what I'm trying to raise. So you've got to start looking at how do you develop not just an angel investor network around you, but get the participation of all of these angels to, to put some money into what you're doing. And that's where your cap table makes a big difference. And a lot of people don't really think about that too, too deeply. They're sort of like, well, cap tables are things that we let our accountants deal with or, or whatever it may be. But you've got to think about that as a founder if you're raising early capital, because if you pay an accountant to make a cap table, they'll charge you an enormous amount of money to do that. <laughs> so, that, I mean, let, let's be honest here. Any lawyers, any, any professional development firms will charge you lots of money to build these things for you. Um, and it's good to see those companies and work with them for small projects, but, but for really making decisions on how you're going to raise your money, you need to create that pool or that network of investors that can come in and work on it together with you. Now, some people might argue, well, isn't it safer for me or less risk if I just go to one investor? Well, the difficulty is that you're very rarely going to find one investor who's going to write you a big check. And if they do, they're going to want a very high stake in your company. So they're going to want, you know, more than half, maybe they, they might have a big piece of equity in that mm -hmm. conversation, right? So you've got to be careful of that, because if you're giving a very large piece of equity to only one or two investors in a, in a seed round, that all of a sudden hampers your ability to go to that next round of capital in series a when you're ready for it so these are some of the challenges and pitfalls right mm -hmm. but again the question is how do you find that 250 to 2 million range of money some people say SBIR, you know sba grants or sbir grants sure. some people say you go to um your local sort of economic development partners like jumpstart or places like that that could help you to raise that amount of capital i'm saying you know widen your horizon when you're searching for that capital so if you're in northeast ohio a lot of people will say your first point of call might be someone like jumpstart and they might refer you to North Coast Ventures or they might refer you to Plug and Play or someone like that. 
I would say try and broaden that net as far and wide as you can, nationally and internationally. Because at the end of the day, you don't always know, even if you've done everything that you're meant to do, you don't always know if there's an appetite with your local community to make that investment. And so what you want to do is widen your horizon and your network to the point where if you need to contact someone in New York, if you need to contact someone in London or Tokyo or wherever they may be in the world, that has an appetite to make that kind of investment, then you're, you've got a much higher chance of success because you're talking to more people who are investing in your space. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that reach gives you some leverage you know, that reach gives you a little bit of leverage in terms of saying, okay, how can I get from this point here to that point there? But you're right. Raising the seed round is very difficult because for me, I think it's a fundamental problem with investment and how investment capital works. Because when you're at series A, and we've had this conversation over a coffee, Dwayne, Mm -hmm. when you're at series A, you've already qualified and validated a number of things about your company in the market. You're selling at some level, you've got traction, you've got clients, you're, you know, you may or may not have positive revenue. But the point is that you're in the market and you're actively sort of doing business in the market. and, And that tends to get you to a series A conversation. When you're seed, you might just have a minimum viable product. You might not have traction. You may not have all of these things that investors typically look for. And that's what makes the conversation very hard because then you're sort of saying, well, I have to tell the story and convince someone to invest in me without showing them a result. Everybody likes, and I'll I'll try and use this analogy, everybody likes a slice of the pie when it's already baked and ready to eat. Nobody likes to come in on the baking process. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for some startups, you're even earlier than the baking process. You're still at the grocery store trying to figure out what ingredients are going into it. And, and, and so when you're an ingredient-based founder and you're walking into a conversation where the investors are ready to eat the pie, how do you position yourself? Yeah. You know, and it's it's a weird analogy, I know, but it's a very valid one because you're right. thinking about it in terms of how do I create a narrative or a story to get these guys excited to write me a check that's big enough for me to actually do something. It's, well, it's a good example for medtech because um, <clears throat> most medtech companies, by the time they raise Series A, aren't don't even have an approved product yet especially the, the innovators. Like, you know, if you, if you have a class three medical device, if you're a de novo, there's, there's no way you've taken, I mean, there's, I guess it's possible depending on how big your seed round was, but most of the time, um, you know, their seed round is not getting them to approval, uh, before they have to read, they have to raise series A to run clinical trials. A lot of times, at least in, in some of these companies, maybe some five, 10 K products, you know, if you raise a $2 million series A round or something like this, you can, you could get to, to market and then raise series A to build out your commercial plan. But for the most part, they're, that's, that's what they're living through. Yeah. And the interesting thing about that is that's where we come back to the strength of, partnering in this in especially in medical and healthcare markets Mm -hmm. because when as you're raising your seed round even if you haven't got a built-out business plan or how you're going to scale the business or any of these questions answered if you walk in there with three or four letters of intent from clients that are very interested to work with you and adopt whatever product or service you've created instantly the investor is going to raise their eyebrows and say wow that's traction. I know it's not checks in the bank, but it's traction and I can measure that. That's a KPI. So when we're thinking about this, think uh, Neil, about- pause, pause real quick, KPI, just, just for the listeners. What do, you, what do you mean by KPI? It's a key performance indicator. Okay, yep. Right, so a key performance indicator is a letter of intent. If you're an early stage startup, a letter of intent by a potential client can serve you as a key performance indicator. Mm -hmm. And that would be based on market traction. So KPIs are measured in any number of ways, depending on the type of business or organization you're in. But in terms of traction and action in the market, Mm -hmm. your KPI is who signed on. 
who's the client who has given me you know approval to work with them yeah um because that leads to future revenue everybody understands this that if, if there's a letter of intent based on a, a number of successful outcomes from that trial then there's a chance that if you if you get ticked off on all those outcomes you're going to have a chance of securing that contract with the the potential client now the lead time in that is slow i'm not going to say it's going to happen overnight it could take six months it could take two years so when you're having that investment capital conversation at a seed round, you have to figure out, okay, how much money do I need to then get to a revenue positive place or level with the client? So I need enough money to run my business until that point in time. Mm-hmm. And then that revenue will come back. Then I become sustainable to some extent. Yep. And then I can figure out how to grow the business. So it's a very, very logical process and so your ask in in terms of going into a seed investment conversation and and this isn't just for medical tech med med tech is a little more expensive but but any startup really what you're asking for is you know i'm trying to raise this money to get to my first round of sustainable revenue so that's your mri your monthly you know revenue run rate or whatever you want to refer to it as so your monthly revenue and your annual revenue and how how do i go from where i am now which is pre-revenue to building the business to a point where we've got monthly sustainable revenue going forward and then above and beyond that does that monthly sustainable revenue put me in a position to cover my burn rate? Mm-hmm. And your burn rate is the cost of doing business and the lead times and the expenses that you incur as a company from getting to that point. So these are some of the questions that become very important because when you, an investor is looking at it, that's how they're looking at it. That's the picture that they're seeing. If you can answer these questions then raising that seed round makes it's a lot easier. I think it doesn't matter what market you're in. It's a lot easier because then from an investor point of view, they're looking at the business and saying, you know what? These founders need a little bit of guidance, but they've done everything they needed to do. Mm-hmm. You know, they've, they've fulfilled our requests as far as ticking off the boxes. All we need to do is bring in some of our expertise and our capital to help them get to the next level. So they see that as a big positive and a big win if, if a founder comes in having done their due diligence and comes in prepared. And, and there's no secret source. So it doesn't matter whether you're in medical devices or social media or any type of technology. There's no secret sauce to raising your capital. It's always the same set of rules that govern how investors think of an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really emphasize that, you know, your letter of intent or your letter of interest from clients, okay. do, doing, you know, doing your market validation and doing your due diligence when you're, you know, speaking with your network and your clients. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very good. Um and and so before we get to the Cleveland market for medtech, you brought it up at the beginning of this, but the the importance of that that cap table. Um, do you want to expand on that a little bit um, on on what you mean by the importance of setting up that cap table to get you to help to bridge that gap from from C to Series A? Yeah. Um, so the the cap table beca- the cap table becomes an instrument of allocating how equity works inside of your company. Um, Now, I am by no means an expert on this. So take everything I say as as sort of a high level view of information and then go and do the research yourself. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, your cap table has to be structured to account not just for who owns how much equity in your company, as a founder or a co-founder, you might think, well, there's two of us, we own 50% each. That's how it works. Now, that's not how it works. You know, that's what, how you think it works when you first create your idea in your garage or your basement, but, but that's not how it works. The reality of it is basically you've got to look at it in terms of, and again, I'll come back to the pie analogy, slices of your company and what those slices are worth. And so let's say your founder, your co-founders, two of you, and you've spent two years working on your 
innovation or your idea or your, you know, whatever you're creating. Now, there's a lot of man hours invested into that. There's a lot of sweat equity in, in invested into that that you're not accounting for in terms of dollars. So what you have to figure out when you're thinking about this equity piece is, okay, I've invested two years of my life. My co-founders co invested two years of their lives into this business. What would that work if they were working for an organization at that same capacity, what would that work be worth? Yeah. Is it worth 100K? Is it worth 200K? What is that worth? All of a sudden, when you start attaching numbers to the hours that you've put into your business, even at a very early stage, you start understanding what the value of your equity is worth. So when you're determining your cap table, and you're saying, for example, well, right now we're two founders, we own 50% each, you have to then start cutting and dissecting that cap table in terms of the value to the dollar. So the value to the dollar might be if you've done a year of work and that work commercially would be worth 100K, then your shares are worth 100K, right? Doesn't that make sense? I mean, I know it's oversimplified, but that's kind of how you think about it. Yeah. Now, building out, and, I, and I'll, I'll skip to the next bit because building out that cap table is even more important because you must understand what you're willing to give away before you walk into an investment discussion. It's just like walking into a casino. Understand what you're prepared to lose before you start making bets and take in only that amount of money, right? Whenever you go to Vegas, take in a hundred bucks, lose a hundred bucks and be happy that you lost it. You know, you <laughs> walk out the door and, and, and it's going to make people laugh. I know, I know what people are thinking. This is outrageous, right? This is, yeah. You know, this is not, not how you should think about it, but, but it is very similar to that in terms of investors understand what they're willing to invest before they walk into an investment discussion. Mm -hmm. So you in your cap table have to be under, understanding of how much you want to give away mm -hmm. in terms of equity before you walk into an investment discussion and understanding the value of existing equity is important, but then also think about this. Okay. We're two founders. At the moment, we have maybe 100% co-ownership and 100% equity in our company, 50% each. Right, now we have to build a cap table and, and dissect some of that equity out. Okay, well, in the last two years of developing our product or service, we have taken on five mentors and advisors on our business. And they have been from the healthcare industry, let's say. Now, each of these mentors and advisors may be experts in their field, but they're not giving their time for free. You have to make sure that they've got some skin in the game, that they've got a vested interest in your success. So you have to allocate a percentage at the very minimum, two and a half percent of equity to every advisor you onboard. So think about that. If you have five advisors at two and a half percent or two, no, let's say five advisors at two percent, right? Let's go yeah. low. Five yeah. advisors at two percent, that's 10 percent of your equity. Right. Right. In your company or something like that. So basically, when we're thinking of it like that, that's how you're breaking your cap table. So all of a sudden, 10% of your company is allocated to your advisors and the input that they have. Then there's, okay, now I've got 80% left, but I want to bring in investors. And I've done the calculation that my time invested and my co-founders time invested has been worth $200,000 based on the market rate of what we would be paid to do this kind of work. Now, so your equity right now is worth $200,000 and you own 80%, but you're giving away a percentage of that equity to an investor or an angel. So you have to now determine, well, how much do I need to give away and what price do I put on that equity? Now, again, this is not as simple as I'm trying to make it sound. There is more to this, but I'm trying to go quick for the podcast. Sure. So, so basically, let's say you then determine, okay, I've given away 10% to advisors. I've got 80% to work with. I still want to retain, you know, my ownership of the company. So that means me and the co-founder want to keep 50% at least, right? I still want to retain that. So you've got 40% to work with, right? Now you've got 40% of equity to work with and you've valued your 50% at 200,000. So then what is the dollar value that you place on that 40%? So as you're talking to an investor, 
you're going in with the understanding that that 40% is worth for your seed round $250,000 or $500,000. Now, instantly the investor is going to come back at you and say, why do you think that 40% is worth $500,000 when you and your co-founder have only invested $100,000 of time and effort and money of your own into the business? Now, how do you answer that? You see what I mean? So this is the cap table, a very real, you know, it, it's not just trying to tell the audience that a cap table is part of your business model. It's, it's trying to tell the audience, you've got to feel this. You know, you really have to feel this out. You know, you have to do some tests in looking at your numbers and saying, how do I want to break it down? Now, the easiest way to do this when you're raising seed round capital, or even for some instances, series A capital, is to break, like I said, break it down where you still have some ownership between you and your co-founder. But that 40%, let's say that's left over, break that down into portions and put a value on each portion. So if you're raising, let's say a million dollars, each portion is worth 100K and you're willing to give away 10 portions or something of that range, right? So you're basically working out that, you know, I can still retain some ownership. I can still retain control over how my company operates. I can still raise the money because I put a value on the equity that I'm putting out there. Mm -hmm. But then you have to come back to your team and then also say, well, because we're doing this, we have to also understand what our input is in the company and what our value is, mm -hmm. because that's what the investors are going to ask us. So building that cap table is really important and, and understanding that if you have 100% of the company, you've got to break that 100% of equity down into different portions in order to raise your capital. And you've got to offer some of that equity to investors. There is another caveat to this. Okay. And, I, and I'll be really quick about this. Yep. The caveat is voting stock. So there's a, yes. there's a difference between common stock and voting stock. Go and do your homework. Do your due diligence. Go on Google. Google this. Learn about this. Read every piece of liter literature that you can find on the differences between preferred stock, common stock, voting stock, etc. And the reason I say this for all founders is because when you understand the differences, you understand what ownership looks like of a business. Right? So venture capitalists could come in and say, all right, well, I want 25% of your company. I'm investing two and a half million dollars in a series. Let's say it's your early, you know, series A round. I'm investing two and a half million for 25%. And I want a seat on the board and I want voting stock. Now voting stock, that means that they, as a lead investor, have decision-making power in your company. Now, common stock doesn't allow that, right? Common stock is stock that people, equity that people own in your company where they don't make decisions inside your company. But you've got to understand when you're speaking with investors, a lead investor will always ask for some level of input inside of your company. And that input will come through offering some level of voting stock. Mm -hmm. Other investors might not. You know, so if the lead investor has four other investors that have joined them on the transaction, each investor may own about the same amount of equity in your company, but they may not have the right to sit on the board and say, well, we're saying yay or nay to your decision making. So you have to think about who says yes or no on the board and how you play a role in that as a founder, because as a founder, you always have that irritation of, I want to be in control of my business, right? Mm -hmm. Here's an important statistic that comes out of Harvard, Wharton, and every other academic institution. Um, this, this statistic is that most founders of companies get replaced within four years of investment. Okay. That's a really, that's a really important yeah. statistic. So if you start a business, you raise your Series A, chances are you're going to be out of a job in three years. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason for that is because of how that voting stock works and how control and power relationships work mm -hmm. with investors. You know, investors might think, well, you did a good job getting it this far, but you're not going to get it to the next level. Sure. We're going to bring in our influence to do that and we're going to replace you. So you have to think about the level of input you want to have in your business 
when you're determining how your cap table is designed, how much voting stock is offered, how much non-voting stock is offered, and then what that looks like. And so homework task for everyone, if you're, if you're thinking about this stuff, study cap tables, study how this stuff works. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate that. That's super helpful. We haven't had really anyone on the podcast going into this much detail on, on the ins and outs of raising money. So I really appreciate that and, and, and the cap table discussion. Um, all right. So I want to end it with the Cleveland market for med tech. Obviously, um, if it's not apparent from my hat, which I know this isn't a video podcast, but there is a video section of it. Um, I was born and raised in Ohio, uh, Youngstown, Ohio specifically, um, which is considered Northeast Ohio. Um, I did all my university studies in Toledo, still in Ohio. Um, and now I've settled down with my, my wife and daughter in Cleveland, Ohio. So I'm obviously very biased towards the <laughs> Cleveland market, want to see it succeed, uh, want to see it do well. Um, let's talk about the current you know, positives about the Cleveland med tech market and also the challenges that, of the Cleveland med tech market and where it needs to go from here. So one of the biggest, I think, success stories is the strength of the Northeast Ohio and Cleveland med tech market. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have some of the biggest healthcare providers in the United States, if not the world, mm -hmm. located or headquartered here. Um, Cleveland Clinic, UH, Metro, you know, all of these players are big in the space of healthcare. And it's very important having these large players in our ecosystem. That's really important. Now, again, with the Cleveland clinics and university hospitals, they're making fairly significant investments and they're partnering with the state on these investments as well with Jobs Ohio and other partners to actually build out that healthcare corridor or that technology corridor that they're building specifically targeted at healthcare innovation. And that's, a, that's a, I think, well into the hundreds of millions in terms of a long-term investment that's going to be happening right here in Cleveland. And they're going to build out the infrastructure. They're going to build out the ability to encourage more innovation, more startups. And they're also going to hopefully encourage an ecosystem where a lot of the startups that are involved in med tech can actually work with the large healthcare providers to commercialize some of their ideas and be adopted by, you know, the, these uh, healthcare ecosystems. So that's a huge, huge project. And like I said, I'm just giving everyone a very high level view of what that looks like. We've only heard as much as probably what's been in the media about these things. But there are inner workings in place, especially with a lot of the executives and even the organization I work for. You know, I know Team Neo's involved and GCP's involved and Jumpstart's involved. And, you know, there's a lot of players in economic development that are part of this conversation. And we're all trying to champion the idea of let's develop a center of excellence mm -hmm. in Northeast Ohio specifically for healthcare and all healthcare-related activities. So whether it's manufacturing related to healthcare and medical devices, whether it's innovation related to that, whether it's software, you know, anything that involves sort of becoming the best at something in healthcare, we're, we're making these investments here in Northeast Ohio. So mm -hmm. what I can say to startups is the next five to 10 years looks very exciting for you guys if you're in the med medical or the healthcare space. Okay. And and that's a really good, you know, sort of way to talk about Northeast Ohio. Um, kind of, I guess, the challenges, which is a question that does come up as well. I think the challenges still remain fairly consistent going forward as they have been looking back. So what I mean by that is that Startups are still going to face a few chicken and egg scenarios in terms of raising capital. Um, again, we've talked about a lot of things today from cap tables to market validation that are important as part of the life cycle of a startup being able to successfully, you know, raise the capital that they're looking for at an early stage and grow upwards. But with that said, I think you're going to find resistance and pushback in general from investment communities, 
if you're going in as an early stage startup. And we have to, as a community, as a startup community in particular, become our own support system or our support network to help champion each other forward. And, and I say this because I, I, I sort of look directly at examples like how fintech has grown in places like New York or how tech has grown in places like Silicon Valley and San Francisco. The community drives the opportunity. So this is fundamental to startups being able to, to become successful. The community drives the opportunity. And if you, if you go and look at it from a cultural point of view, you know, if you spend a week in Silicon Valley and just engage with all of the different startup events and things that were happening pre-pandemic, right? It's gonna start again post-pandemic. If you spend a week in that environment, what you real, realize is you're talking to a lot of entrepreneurs doing interesting things a lot of these ideas are probably never going to make it to market, but somehow there's enough angel capital to service all of these ideas. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing that you wake up to. It's like, well, there's not a shortage of capital. It's, it's just a case of how that capital is being invested and distributed. Now, in a market like Silicon Valley, which is higher risk, there's more leverage for entrepreneurs to access that capital it's a little bit easier. Let's say the playing field is a little bit easier because there's been a lot of unicorns and a lot of success stories from that market. But what drives those success stories is the culture that that, that startup community is building, mm -hmm. right? They're creating the esteem within themselves to say, look, we're backing each other. So if one of our startups in this 100 startup network, let's say, gets investment from Sequoia or gets investment from Anderson or one of the big investment VCs, we're all celebrating that. And then we're learning from them how they went about doing that. And this is the point that we need to develop that kind of culture in the Midwest, in Northeast Ohio, in Ohio in general and everywhere else. Columbus is actually doing it. Columbus is, is doing very well at this. So as their neighbors in Cleveland and Northeast Ohio, we should learn directly from the examples of drive capital and, and the ecosystem that they're developing in Columbus. But at the same time, I think we need to be much more proactive in that conversation of how do you build a startup culture that champions each other to move mm -hmm. forward? Because the community is going to take note of that and they're going to say, well, look, you know, we, what, at one point we had one idea out of every hundred that we could invest in after two or three years of effort from the startup community. Now we have 20 ideas out of a hundred we can invest in. And then that's because of that cultural shift. It's a pivot in the way we think about how we support each other. In the series A side of things, and then I'll close out. I think, think about, think very carefully about the cost of capital. A lot of our very best companies in Northeast Ohio are raising their Series A through C in other markets that are more proactive. They're going to Silicon Valley, they're going to Boston, they're going to New York, they're going to other capital markets to raise bigger money. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason they do that is one, because it's a little bit easier. As I said, the pathway and the network to do that is easier. But the second thing is that the cost of that dollar that they're raising is a lot cheaper in other markets. Mm -hmm. We have a high price. So our cost of capital for Series A and above here is actually fairly high. You know, you can, even if you're a perfectly, you know, set up company and everything's going well for you, as soon as you start entering into that Series A conversation, you may be limited to two, three, four, five million, ten million 10 million maximum in the local market. Now, the same set of books, the same, the same narrative essentially could get you maybe 20 or 30 million in, 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 a, in Silicon Valley or somewhere else, right? So then we started saying, well, is that 5 million I'm getting from a Northeast Ohio investment network the same value as that 30 million I could get from an institutional VC in, in Silicon Valley? Well, the reality is no, because that 30 million gives you much longer runway. Mm -hmm. So... My argument and my challenge to our community of investors in Northeast Ohio is this. We need to understand the cost of capital, the metrics that define success for our startups, what that success looks like, but more importantly, 
we need to become competitive with that higher level investment. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, how do we capture and become the best at something, right? So if we can't compete with San Francisco or Silicon Valley, if we can't compete with New York or wherever these big investments are happening, how do we, you know, how do we position ourselves against Mm -hmm. them? Um, And our entrepreneurs who are successful and get to a series A, they realize that. You know, I call it like being woke to the investment life cycle. It seriously is like that. They get yeah. it. They they get that, you know, if we've come this far, we've got this much revenue, we've got our cap table, we've got all our accounts in check, we're sustainable long-term and we can grow big. They already realize that they can catch a plane for 200 bucks, go to the Valley and raise more money. Mm-hmm. So we have to, we have to pre- prevent that exodus in a way and keep these companies here. But we also have to show that we're savvy enough to catch up. Mm-hmm. You know, we're savvy enough to put the bricks and mortar in place to make investments like that. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's, it's, it's good. I appreciate it. I think that's a great way to, to end. I mean, um, I love, I love learning more about the, the Cleveland med tech ecosystem, but startups in general. So um, it's good to know, you know, what we have and, and also what our weaknesses are. So it's um, well said. I appreciate it. Um, look, Neil, I appreciate your time this morning. Um, stay on the line for another minute here. I'm going to stop the recording. We'll chat a little bit offline as well, but um Really appreciate your time, all the insight. I thought it was great. And, and, and the listeners can really learn a lot about the ins and outs of, of raising money, but then also the Cleveland ecosystem. So I appreciate it. Yeah, if you want to if you want to contact me, I'm sure Dwayne will put up some contact information in yep. the, at the end of the podcast, but you can easily find me on teamneo.org. On the About website, there's a profile of me and all the other stuff that I work with. Um, so that's an easy place to get my contact information. Great. Yeah, and also include, uh, you know, your URL to your LinkedIn. But um, if anyone's, you know, looking to connect, Neil, you're pretty active on LinkedIn, aren't you? Yeah, I'm very active yeah. on LinkedIn. Yes. Okay, wonderful. All right, great. Well, Neil, I appreciate your time. Hold on for one minute. I'm going to stop the recording and uh, we'll chat a little offline. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.